What up, what up, what up, everybody? I would like to welcome you to Fireside Five. We are Integrated Health Sciences, but we are joined with the lovely, beautiful man, Jake Foley. Jake, how you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's a solid Thursday, which I thought was a Wednesday until about 4 p.m. today. So it's a good Thursday. I would say every day is Blur's Day, as far as I'm concerned, during this stretch of our life. So yeah. I'm going to tell your story from my eyes, how we met, how we developed our friendship, our relationship, our professional. And then I want you to kind of fill in some of the gaps because I would assume there's a little bit more to your life than just me. So I met Jake when I was studying for the CSCS. So for anyone who's not familiar with that, that's a certified strength and conditioning specialist. I was studying a book. He noticed that book because he had studied it. He told me I was going to be okay, gave me some good advice. And then we started walking and just started nerding out, which is one of my favorite things to do with my friends that I went to school with. And it's kind of rare that you find someone on the path train that you get to have that level of nerd out with and a friendship was born. So Jake at the time was working with Barben Magazine. They're very large in the CrossFit community. We had a lot of nice talks about how to approach things from a risk reward standpoint. Um, Jake also had some knee trouble. I think we kind of were a second set of eyes with some of that stuff, which was pretty interesting. Jake, you can't see necessarily right now, is a monster in general. But when we dissected him down just a little bit post-op, there were definitely some things that needed to be a little bit better. And I thought it was kind of cool to help you and to look at that with you and show you that physical therapy doesn't just have to be what the protocol says. It can be whatever that person needs at that time. Moving forward, we did some conventional deadlift pre-test stuff. We shot a pal-off press video that's just straight up beautifulness. And then we have just continued to kind of use each other as references when I know that Jake knows something more than I know. I'm very happy to give him a quick call and chat about it. I feel like vice versa is the same. So Jake, fill us in some of those gaps. Tell us your story. Yeah, before we all go into my story, I want to let people know that Quote, you told my co-editor, Nick, that the reason my knee blew out was because my glutes are trash. Straight trash, I think is what I said. Straight trash. So let's not like beat around the bush here. Like, oh, I helped Joe figure out what was wrong. No, you said my glutes are weak and trash. Because uh, they were. And I've since now had a, had a I've, I've developed like a, a problem now. Now I'm like all <laughs> the training. Uh, you can send the therapy bills to me and I apologize. Seriously. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of background on my uh, story. So I came to New York in 2011, originally from outside of St. Louis, Missouri in a little podunk town. Um, I wanted to be like an editor for a fitness website. Like that was the vision, man. Like I had never visited New York, never went to the, like the school I went to, I never visited. I just knew like I wanted to be out here. So pulled the trigger as any rational 19 year old kid does and uh, left Missouri, came to New York, pursued a bachelor's in exercise science later to finish my master's in sports science. And all along the way, I was a trainer and eventually got into editorial where I was a writer at a gym I worked at. So basically worked with a bunch of athletes at a smaller private gym on Long Island, asked if I build up their website, build their blog, because I really wanted to get an editorial and I really didn't know how to do that. So I was like, good, I'm just gonna do it on my own and build something here. So I did that, started getting some traction and I got headhunted by Vitamin Shop Corporate to be there content writer, which is not as glamorous as that sounds. You can trust that. 
Um, was there for about seven months. Ended up meeting my head editor, David Tao, who at the time had founded Barb, and he was there by himself for the most part. There was a couple other guys, but he was like the main writer there, the main editor. I asked to freelance for him and was like, dude, please like let me write for you. I like want to get more into writing. Loved my first piece, which was about post-activation potentiation, which was my capstone in my master's program. So kind of like all tied together perfectly. And yeah, long story short, he then asked me to come to a job interview. Got the job, was at Barbin for four, well, nearly four years, about like three years and 10 months. And then I just had, I left about three weeks ago to do my own thing. So I now have my own business, which is an educational and training portal that is designed to treat the learning process of fitness like a certification without like obviously having that formalized certification behind it for like the recreational lifter and to provide a program that ties the education that we give you with what you're doing. So to teach you RPE, we're not just explaining it. We're actually giving you a program that, that integrates that in to help you actually become proficient one day and to really understand what's going on. So that's the new baby. Um, it's all content related, but the difference is that like I was a trainer, then I went editor and I was like, okay, I like both of these, but in, in like middle ground, right? Like I don't like the 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. trainer hours. And I don't like the nine to five sitting at a desk. So how do I blend those? And here we are, we're doing a little bit of both on a platform that I'm helping curate and create. Yeah, and I, but not between me and you, but for everyone else, but I've seen the content on the backside and it's really great. And it, it teaches in a nice structured way that's digestible, comprehensible. Um, that's, that's, I think, what is that sweet spot and where some of the programs that are similar maybe are missing. I think they, they either throw it way over the backstop or there's no explanation. And, and I think the way that y'all speak and the way that we speak, like you, you meet people at an educated consumer, educated consumer level and someone who wants to grow. Like you're looking for students, you're not just looking for clients. And I think that that's a beautiful way to approach it. It's been, it's, it was really good and definitely worth checking. Where can people find that? We'll talk about it at the end, but where, where can people see that on their own? Uh, Physique Lab. And physique is spelled P-H-E-A-S-Y-Q-U-E. And that is a play on words of easy and physique. And that is created by my co-founder, Ojin Loki, who runs a very big Instagram page that does a lot for the fitness education side with graphics. So he takes his visual and graphic artist mind and we blend my content mind. And that's where we're at. We meet in the middle. And we try to deliver a product that is, I hate to, I hate to use this cliche, but like no bullshit. But also, it's like we don't we, we don't want to overcomplicate, but we also don't want to oversimplify. So that's the ground we try to walk. Um, every day we get better, but that's I think you hit the nail on the head is trying to make digestible content that can be consumed by both the beginner and somebody who's a little bit more advanced, and they can take something from it. Beautiful and best of luck with that, obviously, because we've been talking about it. So to get into the first, and this lends itself really well into it. Our first question is online training. Where do we go next, and how do we improve the experience? Where's your mind go with that, Jake? It's interesting because, you know, I think at the start of the pandemic, when we physically couldn't train in, in person, especially with trainers, I think a lot of people had the mindset where like, oh, this isn't going to work. And now we're getting to the point where we're like, shit, like having a trainer train me over Zoom really isn't that bad. Like, obviously, we all miss the community and like the touch aspect of it. And that accounts for, I would say, like 15 to 20 percent of it. But at the end of the day, the interaction, I think, can still be just as genuine. 
where is training going next, especially online, is I think we're going to see a lot more people, and this is like probably obvious for a lot of people in this room, but um, we're going to see a lot more people start to really trust getting trainers virtually to help them out. And I think as fitness as a whole continues to grow, especially in the content world, we're starting to level up. Like it's no longer the times of like just going to like your men's health and reading the generic article and be like, all right, that's it. I think people are finally starting to get smarter when it comes to questioning and diving deeper into certain topics. And the fact that now you can connect with trainers and coaches virtually a lot easier, it's only going to continue leveling up from here. So when it comes to online training, um, I think we're going to still see a surge of it after even like the pandemic slows down a little bit and gyms do open back up. I think people are still going to really invest in the idea of working with coaches, especially these coaches that they might not just physically be around and they want to work with. We have all these athletes and coaches and so forth that do all this form of coaching and training that you might not live by and you want to train with them and now you can. And we have seen that it's really not that bad and not that different. So that's where I think the industry is heading as a whole. I would love to hear your thoughts too, though. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I'm a I'm a I'm a unique example, I'm a, and I'm going to approach it from two different ways. So when this hit, immediately we shifted to online. As healthcare providers, we actually were allowed to continue to work, but it was uncomfortable enough, and people definitely weren't beating down our door like, "Oh, I want I want to see you in person." Everyone was freaked out, understandably. I mean, I almost feel like I need to say this every time. It's like, I'm citing how it was challenging for us. Lives were lost. I feel like it's worth saying that. It's like, lives are lost. People are continuing to live. My challenges professionally pale in comparison to what a lot of people went through. With that being said, we shifted straight to online like that. And my knee-jerk reaction to it was, this is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I would put it somewhere around like, 75% 75% is good in the beginning. And I would say I worked myself up to where I would say that I was producing at about 85% um, quality for what I, what I could do in person. Now also realize I'm a manual physical therapist. So the hands-on is dog shit. Like that's, I, I can coach you how to use a foam roller and a lacrosse ball and it's serviceable, but there's a lot more that goes into manual therapy yeah. I eat from the emotional side that I'm starting as you get these things taken away, it does help you analyze what you're doing and why you're doing and why it works a lot better. Like the, the lacrosse ball works, but if I can get in with the person and I'm not even saying it's like that, my thumbs are that much better than a lacrosse ball. I just think that there's more to people than just their musculoskeletal system. It's attached to a brain, a person who may feel scared, a person who maybe needs some connection, a person who wants to feel better and relaxed a little bit more. You may not get all that from a lacrosse ball or from a foam roll, even though you're hitting the exact same trigger point for the exact same duration, the exact same time, et cetera, and pressure. So kind of like putting that in a box, like the manual therapy had a big fall off. The strength and conditioning aspect, I felt like started at about 75, went to 85% and hovered there for a little while. And it felt really good. And then I will now say though, now that I'm back, so I've been back in the clinic now for three weeks. I think I may have been tricking myself, not even like from a quality for the consumer standpoint, but from a fulfillment on my side standpoint, I think I was tricking myself into thinking that it was checking boxes that it didn't. Being with someone one-on-one and seeing them and getting to celebrate with them in person 
their progress is more fulfilling and more of an equation, factors more into the equation of why I do what I do more than I thought that it did. And so it's been an interesting kind of walk through all of this. The other side of it is Darius Gilbert, who's the guy who certified me in kettlebells, runs a 9 a.m. kettlebell class every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I always was like, oh, I wish I could work out with Darius. And like in my mind, there was never, I mean, he didn't offer Zoom that I knew, but I'm sure I could have asked him and just been like, yo, can we do a Zoom? Whatever. It never crossed my mind. It just wasn't on my radar. That's it. And being able to, and this lends itself to what you said, like being able to work with Darius, one of the top kettlebell coaches in the country, work with Reka, one of the top kettlebell coaches in the country, taking her class. It was kind of cool. And it was something I didn't even think about. And it made me feel like if I got good enough, that not only do I have access to people in Manhattan, but I have access to everyone in the world. So where does your mind go with that? Like, have you explored any um, training with people maybe that you couldn't or diving into some more online content and things that you wouldn't have pursued that didn't exist before? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's it's something that I think is continually trying to mold like what myself and Eugene are trying to build. Yep. Because like I think you said it best, right? It's like when you take away that in-person approach to it, it's like you're kind of taking away one of your senses. And then without one of your senses, you have to re kind of wire your systems when it comes to how you approach things. Like something that could work when you physically touch somebody versus yeah. you like you have to rewire how you net, how you achieve that now. Yep. So I think um, in that sense, that's kind of one of the back underlying ways that's kind of driving us forward because our sense is like, okay, how can we give somebody the best like quote unquote in-person experience possible when we're not physically with them? Of course. What, what more could we give somebody besides just giving them, hey, here's a video of us doing it, talking to them. Could we put a headphone in your ear where we talk you through the movement as you go at a pace mm -hmm. that you know is going to be feasible for you? Right. Can we do some form of, and this is way down the road, but we keep like throwing it around, like joking, yeah. like how do we literally create like a mini projector on a phone, yeah. and up like a hologram almost that like shows you what to do on like a wall right now and talks you through it. Yeah, and AI is gonna end up being a big part of this too. Mm -hmm. Like do not rule out the day when someone, you know, works and gets sensors sent to them that go on their knees to make sure that their knees are not dipping in, like tracking over your second and third toe. Like that makes me excited and scared all at the same time. Yeah. And the amount of data that wouldn't be needed for that would be like such a sick amount. But I think, it would, yeah, we are heading there eventually. And now who knows when that'll be. But I think the online training surge is going to get us there a little bit quicker. Yep. Plus it's going to weed out the people who are in this industry, honestly, for the wrong reasons or yeah. they're in it for the, the quick fix and they actually don't have like a solid plan behind what they're doing. So that's, a, I think another positive of it, but yeah, man, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting when it comes to like what the next progression is, because now that we've become, I think a little bit more settled and okay with online training, it's like, what next? How yeah. do we level up now? Who's going to do that and so forth. I agree. And I look forward to it. And I, I feel like we're all going to be in that conversation. We'll set 10 years from today. Let's do this exact interview. We'll listen to it. And then we'll come back and say, wow, we were so wrong. <laughs> or wow, we were kind of right about that stuff. So moving on, the back squat, 
Is it overhyped? I love that this is on there. Cannot wait to hear your explanation and answer. So this is like this question, I think, is um, it's grounded in like a lot of internal struggle I've gone through over the last year when it comes to accepting that you don't need a fucking back squat to get strong and build a really great lower body. And it's something that I've always navigated in the strength sports world as an editor because when you write for powerlifting, strongman, weightlifting, CrossFit, like the back squat is an absolute staple. Mm -hmm. And I think as coaches in an industry, we tend to over glorify it for what it's worth. And we don't often contextualize a lot of the background that comes into the back squat. Like it's, it's more of a, it's more than just performing a movement because mm -hmm. let's look at a recreational lifter who physically can't get into a good rack position. Why are we having them back squat? So, <laughs> this is like a conversation I'd love to have with you, but is it overhyped? I think yes. And you know what? A year ago, I probably wouldn't have said that, but it's like a nice, I think, landmark of my personal growth in the world of fitness that you can develop a really strong, dynamic lower body without having the quote-unquote king of all exercises. Yeah. And I think as an industry, we need to move away from the idea that any one or few exercises is like the end-all, be-all. You have to do it. Like, don't treat a goblet squat as a progression to a back squat. Treat mm -hmm. a goblet squat as a goblet squat and learn how to level that up and get gains from it accordingly, you know? Yeah. And like, obviously, if you're a strength sports athlete or you're in a niche sport where you need to back squat, that's a whole different animal and that's a whole different contextual situation because then you need to back squat. But the kind of the tease out the question is, it's I think it's a, it's a, it's a landmark of my growth and when it comes to like, yeah, I think, we need to move by, move away from the idea that the back squat is like the end all be all for the leg exercises, you know? Yeah, and I think that it's interesting. And I actually want to ask you about your injury in a minute. Um, but I think that it's I think that I guess I'll almost give the the pros of the back squat and then say that those boxes need to be checked. Mm -hmm. it, being able to get into a good back squat position and having the appropriate amount of thoracic or trunk extension or mobility and be able to tolerate load in that position, I think is useful. Um, and, and I think it's an efficient way to assess and address just even if you don't have a ton of weight, just that position, being able to master and own that position, I think has benefits. I think from the other side, I think the fact that it's a pure bilateral exercise can let people cheat a little bit more. And if they go for the back squat and then they're neglecting other possible kettlebells that are unilaterally loaded, they may be missing another piece of the puzzle. So I, I, I think it's I think it should be in the conversation and it it needs to be it it's absolutely an important movement to be able to own and master along with a lot of other moves and exercises that are important to be able to move that way and to master so i can from your i will i feel what month did your injury happen just answer that because i need to see if i'm remembering this uh i want to say february february yeah yeah so i was it this is how your injury happened in my eyes it was it was the second week in february i think so i was on medical mission in ecuador and you called or texted me in not such a great state and tell me what happened yeah. Oh my gosh. I will never forget this day. Um, so yeah, I was like literally after work, went to train like normal. I was actually in prep for a powerlifting meet at the time, had the bar loaded at like 80%. I was going through for like 
four sets of four with 365. On my second set, uh, third rep coming out of the hole, whole quad just ruptured and popped off my leg. And coming out of the hole, dumped the weight back, hit my head on a box that was behind me, and I couldn't lift my leg. And I was like, uh, I goofed. Uh, something's, <laughs> something's wrong. I can't lift my leg right now. Um, and then, yeah, I, I texted you and was like, hey, dude, I, I kind of fucked myself up. What uh, what should I do? Yeah, you did. And now my glutes are trash. That's what I learned. <laughs> they were trash prior. That's why you're there in the first place. If you would have come to us as a patient before, that never would have happened. That's fact. All that. Fact. Undeniable. Not able to even to be argued. Fact. So this act, again, leading well to the next question. How deep do I need to go in a squat? Um, I think that's another good question that, like the back squat, comes down to contextual needs of every individual. And I think we need to stop marrying the idea, and this is just for me personally, you might feel differently, that ass to grass is essentially, like, especially needed. Yeah. Like, I think it comes down to the movements we're performing, what our goals are, what our needs are, and easing into something. I think that, again, this is a underlying issue with a lot of the dogmas that go along with some of the training methodologies out there. It's like you have to ask the grass for a squat to count when in reality, a lot of people can't physically get there, especially under load in a manner that I think is great when it comes to longevity mm -hmm. and easing into it or using variations to hit depth. For example, like elevating the heels and letting the knees actually track like they should or using an anterior load and like a front squat or goblet squat to achieve a little bit more depth. Um, it really comes down to where you're at now and your basic needs and then progressively working to get deep enough. And it depends like too, like a back squat, if you're competing in a strength sport, then you have a very clear depth prescription, right? You have to hit a little bit below parallel, like the hip joint has to come below the knee for a lift to count, you know. So when it comes to depth in the back squat, um, I'm really curious on your thoughts here, but I think depth varies greatly depending on needs and wants of what somebody is doing and how they're trying to train, how they're trying to perform. And we need to stop marrying the idea of as being the end all be all when it comes to any form of progression, when it comes to lower body, you know, like, yes, increased depth has been seen to produce more gains when it comes to the quads and put more stretch in the glutes and adductors. Sure. But if we're forcing depth and putting ourselves into a compromised position, how much are we really doing when it comes to benefit? Yeah, and it's the same thing like everything. It's a risk reward. What's the reward? What what are, what am I hoping to get from this? And what's the most likely way that this can go wrong? And what are the consequences downstream from that? And that's how I approach everything. And and to give a little bit of anatomy, there's two, kind of two things that I, I want to talk about um, as far as depth. And I think everyone has a couple of misinformations uh, when it comes to what the hip socket actually looks like. So I think most people, if you ask them what the hip socket is, they feel like they're like two headlights coming straight out in front of them and that's it. And they're both that way and all is well. And so it's perfect and it makes perfect sense if that's your assumption, the way that you might approach depth and squats and positions and leg rotations and things like that and saying that it needs to be this very rigid construct. And in reality, that's not true. So your hip joint is really two bones. So it's your pelvis on one side, making that socket, and then it's your femur on the other side. But your femur in and of itself 
can have different angulations, what's called an antiversion and retroversion, and then also different angulations in this plane of motion as well. So take that and say, not only can like me and you have different femurs, but me and me can have different femurs. My right femur, if I was a kid who slept in that figure four position with my leg, right leg out every night, your femur is going to end up adapting to that position over time. And acetabulum is probably going to adapt to that over time too. So there can be different femurs between people, different femurs right to left, and the acetabulum isn't always facing the same way. Like they're actually facing a little bit more out than most people think that they are. So take all of that to show that my squat and your squat probably shouldn't look the exact same because we're not the exact same. And my squat in my right leg and my left leg may not look exactly the same as well. And that's totally okay. The other thing is, and this is how I was trained, was to really lock into a hyperlordotic position. That's just how I learned from day one how to squat to protect my back. And that was how I learned in high school. I've since learned better abdominal stabilizing techniques to have a more of a neutral spine. But if you do have someone who's squatting with that hyperlordotic, meaning excessive back bend and therefore anterior or forward pelvic tilt, that is going to end up putting those acetabulum or those sockets down more. And that means that you're going to run out of room faster. And one of the ways that you may get a little bit more room is by squashing the labrum on the front. So your labrum's kind of cartilaginous. So it's not really like your ear. It's probably like, and my nose is different from a lot of people's, but like this kind of like hard part in your nose, your nose kind of feels bony and then feels soft and it has kind of everything in between. Picture your labrum and your meniscus as somewhere in between that really hard part of your nose and that really soft part of your nose. So it has a little bit of give. So it'll let you one time, two time, three time, four time. It'll continually let you get away with smashing it, scrunching it, and it'll move out of the way and it'll move out of the way and it'll come back. But just like a washing machine that if you continually overload it, you won't really see the effects until the day that it breaks down. You're setting yourself up for, for, I'm not going to say probably having a problem, but you may have a higher risk of challenges if you are totally married to a hyperlordotic anterior pelvic tilt and ass to grass squat. Those three things may not be able to cohabitate. When I say that, where, what what does that peak in your mind? Uh, it just, it makes me think of some of the, I want to say like, I hate that those word around, but like clout lifters on Instagram, right? Like some of these elite power lifters who continually force depth in the exact manner you've said, and they're getting away with it. But at the end of the day, it's like an injury only happens after enough time of accumulation has happened with the load on an unstable surface. So yeah, I, I, that, my mind goes to the athletes who are continually doing exactly what you stated, which is like, yeah, you, you force your depth for the day. Good. Because you had enough load on your back and you had a belt, which, didn't let you fully realize how shitty your brace was and you have on knee sleeves, which is allowing you to get a little bit more pop out of the hole. Right. But the moment you take away those variables and shit hits the fan, what are you going to do? You're not going to be able to do that anymore. And then that's why you see all, I think all these power lifters get injured young and be like, ah, shit. Like, and then they get smarter at training, which I think is honestly better in the long run. Like myself yeah. happened to me, but it makes you really kind of, I think, understand that there isn't one way of approaching it. Yeah. And especially when it comes to something like depth that 
it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than people want to give it credit for. You know, yeah. not a lot of people think like, oh, well, maybe my femoral head doesn't fit into my acetabulum the same as this. So now why would I not be getting depth and so forth? Like nobody thinks like that. And yeah. people think like, oh, you have to integrate that's what social media says or that's what I've always been told. But there are just better ways to approach that topic. Yeah, and I think I think we'll probably look back at this conversation in when in our ten year in our ten year reunion podcast that we do. I think we're going to be really happy with how things have gone in the future because I, I think that the conversations like this are happening more and more, and they're going to continue to happen more and more. And I think that there's going to be a lot more. And this is like this is where I find fitness a little bit baffling at times: the lack of assessment that goes into it. A little bit of assessment goes a long way. I say this every new patient I have, why would I guess when I can assess and address? And I think that that mentality that I have for physical therapy, which was beaten into me all through grad school and everything. And since I got out was like, and part of it comes from just insurance companies will not pay if you do not show them an assessment for the intervention that you're doing. And as much as I like hate insurance companies, I see their point on this. If I don't assess Jake and do one bridge squeeze or a single leg stance or a single leg RDL or a side plank for tolerance, if I don't do any of those, how can I justify one, telling him that his glutes are straight trash and then two, in the treatment and asking them to pay for it, doing a whole bunch of glute exercises if I didn't assess it in the first place. So it's kind of an interesting Everything's moving towards the things that work, but then in some ways they're not because popularity doesn't always mean that there's solid content. But I, I think, I think with you, I have my fingers crossed that in the 10 years when we do our reunion tour, we're going to be happier with where things are at. So how do I train as a strength athlete, but not run myself into the ground? Great question during pandemic because people have more time on their hands. A lot of people do. And just pushing that performance lever and not pushing that recovery lever, I'm seeing happening more than once. Yeah. So this this is a good topic because I think there's so many different ways to approach this. Um, so two things that I want to talk about is because so many of us are in the pandemic and we have all this time to train. And this is something I actually ran into when the pandemic started. I was like, oh, I have a, I have a home gym here. Like, I could train all the time. Mm -hmm. It's treat times when you're not physically, and this is like for strength athletes, but for recreational lifters too. Like think back to when you were doing sports, right? You would ramp up intensity and then scale back and create like a structured mesocycle format for your training. Pretend that you're in an in-season, off-season format, even when you're not getting ready for competition. So if you want to train like a strength athlete, so if you want to do like the big three often and train them heavy, pretend, and this is just comes down to like great programming, but a lot of people overlook this aspect, especially beginners recreational lifters is to pretend that physically like you're almost like creating like mock meet scenarios. Mm -hmm. So pretend that you're ramping up your intensity and then scale back accordingly to make sure you're getting enough recovery. Because as you stated too, we have go, 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 go. And then when we're stuck at home, we're like, fuck, I'm always kind of recovering. I'm not really going anywhere, but really we're not because we're stressed. We're just training more. And we're really not getting out of our element to really up our recovery needs. Um, and another thing that, I think is worth mentioning, and this is something that I ran into, and I don't know if anyone else is in the same boat, but if you're like always stressed and not getting enough sleep and you're still competing and like running your body ragged when it comes to training heavy, scaling back 
the volume by like a third. It, it's, it, it bleeds into like our final topic that we were gonna talk about today. But I think it's amazing to see how much the body really freaking needs to keep progressing, especially when it comes to a purely specific strength standpoint. Um, and how much extra we do at times when reality is we're training for a very specific thing and let's say our recovery means are lower than they would normally be if we were in like peak ideal situation and we got to cut out some of that fat so like cut out some accessories that we like to do but aren't necessarily needed for our goals which are in this setting as a strength athlete progressing the main lifts for competition mm-hmm. it's cutting out some of that fat and dropping your training frequency down so um yeah just some like some roundabout tips there are one pretend you are in an in-season setting all the time no matter if you are or not it helps you structure your mindset and your program accordingly and helps you i think naturally lean into recovering a little bit more especially if you pretend that you are getting ready for a competition and then coming back from one and then also being a little bit more mindful of the meat and potatoes of a program and then like the fluff like what if you're if you're not recovering enough and you want to train heavy you want to train the big compound movements what can you realistically cut out that isn't going to make or break that progress that will help you increase your recovery and for me that's often like about 30 percent of my accessories as much as i love my my glamour accessories after the big three you know it's like high volume training we know that that's very cns fatiguing so you got to think like okay i have these two buckets i want to fill this strength sports athlete one this one's going to have to decrease a little bit. So I got to pour some water out here to make sure I have enough means accordingly. Yeah. Has the, has HRV and the aura ring become popular in strength sports yet? Like are most people in the CrossFit games using these guys or the whoop or, you know, those are the two main ones on the market, but like is HRV it's, we've been talking about HRV for a decent amount of time. Um, Then NBA decided like it became more popular and harder to sell out because of two reasons. One was, I believe Prince Harry wore an aura ring, couldn't get one for the next like couple of weeks or months. The next, the NBA is actually using it because they know that it can help monitor for pre, pre-symptomatic COVID cases. Meaning if they can see that your respiratory rate is going up, when you're sleeping, if they can see that your temperature is starting to edge up a little bit from what you typically are, they can catch those people a little bit faster. And then obviously, I mean, the HRV benefit is huge. Um, Is this popular yet or are people not really doing it? Yes and no. Um, I think Aura Ring is a little bit more popular in the world of CrossFit, but across all strength sports, I think Whoop is a little bit more popular. But I think also like there's a lag always when it comes to like, recreate like just your normal sports and then strength sports like i hate to say it but i feel like strength athletes are often a little bit slower to catch up to the more progressive means of strength and conditioning and i think that just bleeds to like one i think strength athletes inherently can be like minimalist when it comes to like what we really need to perform well and we always think like we know the best means already which we obviously don't and where strength and conditioning and just regular sports when you have coaches teaching you about hrv and showing you how this can be beneficial it's a lot easier to adapt um so when it comes to HRV specifically, it's starting to get a little bit more popular. I actually did a project with Whoop a while ago, and it was really interesting. And I like I loved testing the different means to raise and decrease my HRV. Like yeah. there were some days where I would literally try to get my HRV as low as I could on purpose. Just yeah. murdering yourself? Yeah, just to see like how my like internal stress related to what this was reading and if it was actually true and 
how well it works because at the end of the day, we also got to remember like their algorithms are continually improving. They're not foolproof yet. Right. So I think HRV is starting to become a little bit more prevalent in strength sports. It's not, it's definitely not to the same level as professional sports or even like collegiate settings. But I mean, that's always the case. I feel like we always kind of pick up a little bit later on. Like now finally strength sports are starting to understand like, we need a lot more unilateral work. We need a lot more of the prehab work. And that bleeds again from the strength and conditioning world. Like they've been doing that forever. Like yeah. how you keep athletes competing. Why strength athletes don't adapt some of these main principles to keep them in the game longer. It's beyond me, but hopefully we see HRV pick up more. And honestly, with the companies that you mentioned too, or a ring and whoop, like hopefully they keep refining their processes too. Like, I mean, they're still limited as well. Like they don't have, I don't think the best technology for women right now, to be quite honest, when it comes to like, and being in the menstrual cycle and how that affects HRV. Like, I don't think there's a good algorithm there for that. Right. There's definitely some room to grow, but I'm happy you brought that up because HRV is something that's really interesting and something that a lot of folks don't even think about. Yeah. So Mike T. Nelson, who was one of our first guests, uh, was one of the people who brought HRV to the forefront um, in strength and conditioning. Um, and he happened to be my uh, partner for a uh, cadaver dissection that I did a couple years ago. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting, like maybe you've been in this scenario, hopefully not, where you're like trying to show that you know something about something. And then the person is so kind about it, but shares nine times more information than you thought possibly existed. And then you realize like, who was I just talking to? And you realize that you were probably citing their own research back to them. You just didn't know that it was theirs. Nothing like a good lunch that goes down like that. But he's super cool. I actually just interviewed him on his own podcast because I think his story is so interesting. But on his podcast, he's always talking about the information that he shares, but never told his story about how he ended up getting through his college into grad school into his PhD program. And because of his path in math, they ended up giving him the HRV project, which makes sense, but he hated math. That's why he got out of it. And then he got greeted with this more math stuff and he's just like, geez. So either way, long story short, I think we are gonna see HRV become your resting heart rate, your blood pressure. Hey, I fantasize about the fact that everyone has a wearable one day. And I'm not even saying that there aren't cons to being hyper aware of your metrics. Like you were playing with it, but you could see how someone could get a little obsessed with it. And I don't want that to happen, but I do want people to be able to step back and say, oh, I had three glasses of wine last night. My sleep was really bad and my HRV is not great. But when I only have two glasses of wine, I'm okay. I think that that's information that would take years for people to just kind of suss out themselves. And when you have some feedback in a few nights, when something continuously happens, you kind of click in and are like, maybe I shouldn't drink so much, or maybe I shouldn't eat so late, or maybe I need to rest a little bit, or maybe cold showers are helpful, or maybe warm showers are helpful. What were the ways, just a quick side, what were the ways when you would just totally dump your HRV? Were there any, were there any cool ways other than meditating or sleeping like the normal ones that you could kind of get it to be back where you wanted it to be yeah um so always it, it, i had two that i would like to do a lot and yeah. one i would say is more probably placebo and snake oily than the other but like one taking cbd actually helped me and i was like i'm still skeptical of cbd and when people ask i'm like tread lightly because i don't 
necessarily think that research is definitive enough to say anything too positive for it, but I did notice my HRV would spike like immensely after I took it. Wow. And also um, cold showers before bed. Yeah. I don't know why, like they were very uncomfortable obviously, but you would think that people often say, like, oh, cold showers before bed, that'll wake you up. No, it actually like yeah. me calm down. And yeah. I think because I'm always in a state of like hyperactivity that like almost like physically putting on an external hyperactivity to me, like almost like calming me down a little bit. Sure. But yeah, it was interesting. Like the one day I had like a 2% recovery. Oh. That was the lowest I ever got it. And that was after like running five miles, lifting, and then like 10 shots of tequila. Yeah. Like, I'm like, there's no way that you didn't drink that. No, I drank a lot. That was like the lowest I got it. But I was able to like bring it back up. But it's really interesting. I think that, and honestly, this is a great segue here, but not people don't account for how long it takes your HRV to come back to baseline after you do something like that. Yeah. After you do like a binge drinking night or like you go out and you pull an all nighter, it takes like two or three days for your nervous system to be like, oh, fuck, like I'm finally starting to get back to normal, you know? It takes so much longer than I think people want to give themselves credit for. And it's not just an immediate like bounce back. Right. Put yourself into that deep I, I feel the same way that I, I I think that and and maybe it's a factor of like I'm in my late thirties. You're are you in your late twenties or early thirties? Uh late twenties. Yeah, exactly. Like I think just like you said with women's menstrual cycles, I think that the algorithm is gonna start to play together and realize that maybe in your years 30 to 40, 40 to 50, 50 to 60. That 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 equation that they use for recovery needs to be tweaked to give a little bit better representation. And again, in our ten-year reunion, it's going to be nice to see where that goes. So, how much do I need to truly maximize strength and muscle mass? Great question. Yeah. Oh my God, this is a huge question. I know I brought this up before because there's not really a one-size-fits-all answer here, and I'm really curious to hear your answer because I know it's definitely going to be different than mine. Um, so I think it's important to define those two before even diving into it. Like what kind of strength we're going for. Are we going for like maximal strength? Are we going for just relative strength? Are we just trying to improve our strength endurance, for example? All of these can factor into the frequency and the amount of volume we're doing on a week-to-week -week basis. But something that I would like to talk about and hear your thoughts on too are dictating overall volume by effort-driven sets. Mm -hmm. and trying to assess those numbers on different muscle groups based on basically how the muscle is meant to function, how we want to use it, and how we plan to use it to accomplish goals. And using those effort-driven sets then to dictate our weekly training value and tread lightly when it comes to not doing too much and then not doing too little. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would love to hear how you approach this and then I can kind of like jump back yeah. here. Yeah, so exactly. Being, being a physical therapist, like how do you approach writing a prescription for somebody who wants to just maintain a baseline level of strength and continue where they're at and maybe get a little bit stronger, like how much would you give them if they are strapped on time and want to just do the minimum effective dose? Yeah, so so the, the my mind goes in a couple of different ways. I, 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 as There's a few things, like let's just take the three things that just pop into my mind when it comes to longevity that has correlations. Again, we can't, we're not saying that having a strong grip strength is going to pump some muscles and then therefore your heart will beat longer. It's a correlate. It correlates to longevity. So the Brazilian 
sit down, get up test or get down, get back up test. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I'll talk about it in a second. The grip strength and then muscle mass are the three things that tend to end up coming up time and time again as, and that's just three. There's so many different um, wormholes you go into, but those are the three that maybe I've read about most recently. And I'm thinking on most recently, this is kind of like a dire entry for me is like, this is how I look at longevity. So there's those three tests, which I'll talk about in a second. And then the other thing is, I actually think that the World Health Organization hits the nail on the head pretty well when they talk about suggested exercise level. So I'll give you their, um, I'll give you their, their uh, equation, if you will. And so they want you to be about 300 between 150 and 300 minutes um, of activity that's moderate to vigorous. And the way that they kind of break it down, if you read through, and that comes out to about 22 to 44 minutes a day, but the way that you break it down, if you really like dig into what they're recommending is if you have a vigorous minute, and I'll, I'll define moderate and vigorous in a second, but if you have a vigorous minute, it almost counts as like two moderate minutes. So you can use that as your equation. Like if you wanted to hit the really low end of 22 minutes of exercise, of moderate exercise, you could really hit 11 vigorous minutes a day. And moderate meaning that you could talk, but you couldn't sing. And these are the best that we can have as far as like rates of perceived exertion, because it's really hard to get people to calculate their heart rates and then figure out what it is. Like most people are just exercising and they're exercising with their mouth and their lungs. So let's use rate of perceived exertion and a talk test just to kind of guide us where to go. So moderate, would be us saying that I could talk, but I couldn't sing. Vigorous would be you could say a couple of words, but you can't speak in full sentences. And I think that that's an important base to cover and also to help us double bang for our bucks because, all right, when I'm doing some of my pre, like we always assess everyone and then give them corrective exercises. So you come into us, I put you through our eight foundations of movement, you come out, we do a little bit of systems prep to begin, like we're getting our diaphragmatic breathing going, our pelvic floor, our cervical spine, our vision, two minutes, it's all good. Go hit a little bit of a warm up, and then I'm going straight into the things that you need to do. Like you need to switch on your glutes as far as hip abductors and external rotators a little bit more than someone else. And I'm not just picking on you, I'm just using that. And my right ankle's really stiff, so I need to hit that. And then I do a nice full prep from the shoulders all the way down to the hips, hit all 12 muscle groups. And then I'm going into some stuff that unfortunately like now is actually going to start to tick those boxes of moderate and vigorous. So like finishers, like AMRAPs, uh, depending on the EMOM, that could be a little bit more vigorous. Your work sets would fall more into the moderate range, depending. Obviously cardio is another thing. And, and again, I kind of want to mention this right now is like, I think that gets overlooked. Like if your resting heart rate isn't near 60, I don't know. And, and this all leads us back to like, do I have, is it in my best interest to not be focused on these other things before I look at sets and reps as far as strength training? And like, I think you can even say like, if the person's digestion isn't all that awesome, does, is it, whether it's three sets of 10 or three sets of 12, does that is what's going to lead to better longevity. If they only are sleeping five night, five hours a night, does it matter whether it's five sets of five or three sets of 10? 
And then, so to take all of that and to now bring it back to like, I think people's, CO, like people's VO2 max needs to be in a good place. And that's like something I, I think about before I think about like strength, strength. And then do they have, are they getting just enough activity exercise, no matter what it is? Okay, that needs to be checked before I'm thinking about volume. And then I take it through to like, do they move okay, cool. Then the three things like grip strength, which I think more leads to what you're talking about. Again, like grip strength is just a quick and dirty way to see how strong someone is, cool. Muscle mass can really only be determined by your doctor, depending on what it is, but you can also just look at someone like and tell perhaps where they fall in that category. And then the Brazilian test, which has a, a really nice amount of research for it, is being able to get down to the ground and get back up without using your hands. And every time that you touch, meaning like if I'm sitting on the ground and for me to get up, I need to go and put my right elbow down, my right hand down, my right knee down, then I get to my left foot, then I coming up. Those points of contact from instead of just being able to go down and back up tend to correlate to longevity as well. And I'm not saying that that needs to be trained. I'm just telling you all the different ways that my mind goes when I'm thinking about the hierarchy of where true volume as far as strength strength training goes and the boxes that need to be checked before it. Then another tangent, which is gonna be for another time, is I think about protein intake, is like a really good conversation in the longevity and strength community as far as like muscle mass we know is correlated to longevity, that's very important. IGF-1 or insulin growth factor one, if it's too high, can lead to decreased longevity or is shown to correlate to decreased longevity. And there's another million reasons why that might end up being one hypothesis is because it turns on cells and tells them to grow, then it can lead to higher cancer rates. And therefore, if you're really pushing for growth, 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 if you have precancerous cells, they're going to end up growing, 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 and that could lead to higher levels of cancer. The combat to that is perhaps doing fasting mimicking which is uh, to induce autophagy, which is where your body ends up going through and clearing out some of its cells that are less than perfect. Again, this is a story for another time. And almost it's a story for another time because I haven't landed on an answer in myself. So I kind of want to wait and reserve judgment before I say, but now that I just gave a million different things with no real connection between two of them, what do you say, Jake? Yeah, I mean, so I'm just going to focus on one aspect and that is increasing like barbell strength, right? So that's like, I don't want to go into all the variables you did, but I want to talk about like, what is actually needed when it comes to like barbell training, especially like, like let's say squat and bench press. And where my mind went when I sent this question was to a study I wrote on, I believe it was later last year, about like the minimum effect of a dose to actually increase your squat and bench press on a week to week basis. And what they pretty much found was that one set performed two to three times a week in between six to 12 reps with intensity ranges of 70 to 85% of your one RM was more than enough to continually progress. Now, was it as much as some of the athletes who were doing a little bit more? No, but to move the needle forward, yeah. it wasn't really that much. So it's an interesting topic because I mean, to your point too, we have all these boxes to check but when it comes to strength athletes in general or just your recreational lifter who just loves to squat, bench and deadlift you probably don't need as much 
as you think, especially if those are effort-driven sets with intent. Um, three sets a week at like, let's say six to eight reps. It's nothing. Able to move your, yeah, able to move the needle forward. That's really nothing. And it really comes down to then factoring in the context of your life and where you're at. And if you can train more and you do have a lot of recovery, that's when I think it's important to push that needle forward a little bit more and kind of find that outer edge of like how much is too much for you versus like what's too little. And then obviously I think the big takeaway here is that when life does get crazy and shit, it's the fan not freaking out and knowing that for just the recreational intermediate lifter, we don't need that much to continue progressing, especially if our diet's dialed in and we're doing some of the other activities that you've mentioned and we're covering on some of those like cardiovascular features and like worrying about go-to max and like how we're just moving in general um we're gonna be just fine so that was kind of like the whole point of bringing this up is i just wanted to like touch on it on a barbell perspective because yeah. i think at times as a population we can get into the mindset of more is more but that's not always the case especially when it comes to beating our bodies up in the gym after they've already been beaten up in daily life so yeah well, that, that's so interesting i'm so glad you brought that up because i that's not I would have not thought that 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 there was such a reasonable minimum effective dose for it. And now that really like I love having these aha moments like on camera with this, but like that's great. That's really thank you for bringing that up because that's so helpful. Because especially like some some of our listeners and viewers aren't particularly into strength training, and it can be so discouraging if they went on a quick little search of like, what do I need to do to strength train? And we're talking huge amounts of volume and things like that. And it can become very off-putting, scary, and understandably, therefore it can turn into an aversion. And that's really nice to know that it's, and, and can you say it one more time? So it was, it was yeah. one set, six to 12 or six to 13. What was it? For the squat and bench, a single set, with around six to 12 reps, two to three times a week with an intensity in between 70 to 85% of your one RM was enough to move the needle forward. Now, remember that there's a lot of context here, right? So it's like, obviously if you're at much more of an elite level, you need more to obviously sustain. But for like to your point, just the recreational lifter who might not be that into barbell training, but wants to get stronger, it doesn't take too much to get really moving and get progressing, especially if you are, let's call like a, a very like, fast responder to this style of training because you haven't been doing it forever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't take too much. But what's really interesting too is that research is still thin on the deadlift, for example. And like, it's, it's cool because like there's suggestions for the squat and bench, but the deadlift is such like, I think a different animal here because it has so much of a different demand on different people's bodies and how they're performing them and so forth that if I had to guess, the deadlift would actually need probably less volume than what the squat and bench do. And honestly, if I had to even look at the squat and bench, then I would kind of err towards giving a little bit more frequency and volume to the bench because that is a movement that if you're trying to progress it is way more specific in nature and you do need to train it a little bit more frequently. Like three to four times a week with training bench is often said to be the best if you're trying to go for like the most optimal gains depending on your level. But yeah, again, to wrap that up, uh, the meta-analysis said that six to 12 reps two to three times a week with about 70 to 85 percent of your one rm was enough to at least maintain and progress the needle slowly with squat and bench so if you're not a big barbell advocate and you don't love doing those movements if you get in effort driven sets a few times a week 
you're going to move that needle forward. Now, obviously, as time goes, unfortunately, you're going to have to add a little bit more depending on which variable you want to add. So when it comes to intensity or volume and so forth, but that's a bigger question that we're not going to solve here without talking individual needs. That's awesome. Well, Jake, thank you so much. So I'm going to just open this up for questions. Can you give us one? You already kind of gave us a little bit of help, but like where can people find you? And then can you just give us some closing remarks while we see if anyone's got any questions from the bullpen? Yeah, you can uh, you can find me at Jake underscore Bully, B-O-L-Y on Instagram. And then, uh, yeah, you can check out our my latest project, Physique Lab, if you want. And that, again, is P-H-E-A-S-Y-Q-U-E and then Lab. And, yeah, I would love to answer any other questions that folks might have. Um, a lot of these topics were very big in nature, and there's a lot of context there. So if we didn't, I don't think, touch on the exact thing you might have been looking for, it's probably because we just don't know the background of what you're looking for. So if there was any conversation in here that you want clarity on, or anything like that, or if you're like, okay, well, how do I apply this to my life? Reach out, hit me on either of those platforms, and I will gladly answer and give more information if I can. Perfect, and same goes for us as always. Well, Jake, thank you so much for coming out. This was great, and thank everyone for attending our little Fireside 5 discussion. This was awesome. I will look forward to you and wish you the best, obviously, but I don't need to wish it to you. You're a hardworking, intelligent human being, only great things for you. And thanks everyone else for being a part of our movement towards movement. Take it easy, y'all. See you guys.